economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. Okay, and you did introduce yourself on that too? Yeah, Okay, at the very beginning. So I'm not listening very well today, so that's the way we start off this program. So we're in part two of a three-part series, and today we're going to look at the Milgram experiment, and then the follow-up next week will be the upshot, or the Nuremberg trials. And so Justin, where are you taking us today with the Milgram experiment? Okay, so last week we did the Stanford Prison Experiment, and this week we'll talk about another famous set of psychology experiments, or experiment, which has since been you know, attempted to be replicated a bunch, but it's generally called the Milgram Experiment. And, and in case somebody's just joining in on this one, the short of the Stanford Experiment was we thought prison guards, people were randomly assigned, and it turned out the guards did some awful evil stuff to the prisoners and then that was supposed to be a reflection of humanity but then that was challenged listen to our podcast last week for all the more details but that was kind of the gist of it in a quick little flyby the gist of it would be something like lord acton's maxism oh yeah that's right power tends to corrupt corruption even if you assign power uh, indiscriminately or rather randomly you can see that those who are assigned power tend to use it for selfish or even nefarious reasons, right. even cruel reasons. Okay. So, and then I just want to state, we shouldn't, during this podcast, compare this experiment to the Stanford Prison one, okay. that's what we'll be doing next. All podcast. right, leave it as a standpoint. Okay. All right, got it. So, in the Milgram experiment, which was done in 1961, so this was actually done before the Stanford Prison experiment. What happens in the Milgram experiment is they select a set of volunteers, and in this case, it's actual adult males, so not college students, but people who are actually, you know, in the workforce. And like any good psychological study, what these people think they're volunteering for isn't actually what's being tested, right? So what happens is if let's say you volunteer for this study, you are brought into a room and you are told we are trying to figure out, or we are trying to test this method of learning. And we have a student on the other side of this wall who has been taught these answers to these specific questions. And we want you to ask, ask them these questions. Now, If they get them wrong, you have to press these buttons and give them a little shock. And each time it gets, each time they get it wrong, you have to kind of increase a button, right? Um, So what we're trying to test is how well these students have learned and how well this kind of method of punishing them from when they don't learn. Sometimes the carrot and stick, the stick. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) right? So we're trying to test this stick method of learning, right? And so you might say, okay, and then technician, the person who's in charge of the experiment uh, in a white coat, the doctor, right, says, all right, start asking them questions. And you ask them questions. And lo and behold, they start getting things wrong. And so the 
the experimenter, right, in the lab coat will say, all right, press button number one. And so you'll have to press it. And then you'll hear on the other side, you know, ouch, ow, right? <laughs> and then, you know, the more they get wrong, the more you have to increase the voltage that you're pressing. So that's what you think when yeah. you're going into the yeah. experiment, right? Now, that's not actually what's being tested in the Milgram experiment. The uh, student on the other side of the wall is an actor, mm -hmm. right? And so they're actually not connected up to any electrodes and you're not actually delivering any electric shocks. <laughs> so what's actually being tested is your willingness to continue shocking the learner yeah. when you are instructed to do so by the experimenter. Okay. So again, like any good psychological study, you don't know what's being tested right. and you're being tested when you think you are testing somebody else. Yeah. Similar to a lot of economics experiments. Too. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what happened in this study? Well, it's not just that these electric shocks get, you know, a little bit more painful every time. They go up to 450 volts, which is a lot. <laughs> and in fact, at the very end of the series of buttons, they were just labeled XXX. <laughs> and so the way this was constructed was if at any time you, the, the teacher in the experiment, said, I don't want to go any further, you were, you were given these four series of prompts. The first one was, please continue. And after the uh, experimenter said that to you, you, most people, you know, would continue. And if you said, no, I don't want to continue, then uh, the second prompt was, the experiment requires that you continue. Mm, okay. And then if you still refused, you were told, it's absolutely essential that you continue. Um, <laughs> and then finally, um, if you still refused, you were told, you have no other choice. You must go on, right? <laughs> And I get you thinking, well, what do you mean by that? Did well, the person have a gun on their side as they said that? No, but they you have no other choice. You must go on. They did have a lab coat on. Right? <laughs> oh, that's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> what the study found is that over 60 and almost 70% of the people would press all the way to the very end. And they would administer the 450 volt shock three times. So the experiment ends when you either administer that last shock three times or you refuse after that fourth, you have no other choice, you must go on. Okay. Right. So if you, if you say, after that, if you say, no, I'm not, then the experiment's over. Did and most people make, I don't know if you know this, uh, uh, did most people make it to that fourth prompt or were they going all the way through with the third or the second? Or the, almost everybody objected at least once. Right. Okay. So they get told, please continue. Yeah. Um, but 70% of the people make it all the way to pressing that last button. Okay. And it's not only that every time you press that button, you hear, ow, ow, ow. You hear things like, my heart hurts. Let me out of here. I, uh, and I mean, you can listen to these recordings. You are things like, I, let me out, mister. I don't, I don't want to keep going on. <laughs> and in fact, when you get to the very end of it, you hear things like, my heart hurts. And then you hear silence. <laughs> And so you are asking questions and not even getting the wrong answer back. You are getting nothing back. And you are still told to shock this person, right? <laughs> Who is presumably unconscious or dead on the other side of the... Wow. Yeah. So one of the responses that people get, even when they continue to shock, is this kind of maniacal laughter that Russ is exhibiting right now. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, even when people are uh, nervous... You know, a lot of the subjects, like I said, everybody objected. A lot of people, you know, pressed the buttons shakily. They were, 
you know, obviously reticent to do so and reticent, but after being told you have no choice, you must go on, they still press the button. Um, so should, should we say a little bit about why this experiment was conducted? Yeah. This experiment was conducted right after World War II when we were trying to understand the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the things that we wanted to understand was how could a nation like Germany, yeah. which was the most learned nation in Europe, that is where the university system comes from, that's where, you know, all the way through the 30s, you would send bright American students to get their doctorate and then their habilitus before coming where back Luther to came from. Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> and so how could this nation of very learned and cultured people turn into a death camp? Yeah. Right? And how could so many people be involved in this machinery of execution? How could so many people do something that presumably we all knew and th- that is so on its face immoral, right? And, you know, the way Germany was organized was according to what's called the Führer Prinzip, um, which is the Führer Principle. And, you know, when people think of the Führer, they think of, uh, you know, Hitler was the Führer. But actually, according to the Führer Prinzip, the Führer Prinzip is a way to organize society where everybody has a Führer. Hitler was just the Führer of all the Führers. Mm. But under the Führer Prinzip, you all have somebody who is in charge of you, yeah. right? The hierarchy, almost like the military or yes, something. Yes, it's yeah. exactly hierarchic. And so for every person, you have, a, you have one person who is in charge of you. And if that's the case, and if that person has authority over you, and if they can tell you what to do, well, if our question was, how on earth could all of these people in Germany who were, you know, otherwise upstanding educated citizens uh, be convinced to do something that's obviously immoral? And they go, and their answer was, I was just following orders. Well, and in their case, it was kind of turning the, turning the cheek, kind of ignoring that there's lots of people leaving their community, the Jews, right? I mean, well, it, my I, point is that they weren't the ones necessarily hauling them off, although the military guys were, of course. But there were but the plenty of average citizenry was just seeing this separation of people. There were plenty of normal people who were otherwise upstanding people who joined the military and yeah. who joined the police force and did those horrible things too. So yeah. it's not just the turning the other cheek part. Okay. It's that a lot of the people were actually, you know, plenty of people were complicit plenty of people were also involved, yeah. right? And so if our question started out with, how could these people of Germany you know, succumb to this? Or what's wrong with the Germans, if that's our question? The answer, according to the Milgram experiment, is that's not unique to Germany, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Um, it's that, that it's a human thing that we tend to follow orders when we feel there's somebody above us that's telling us to do it, even if it's maybe against our... Even if it's against our conscience, even if we know that it's wrong. If there is somebody who is in, you know, even a perceived position of authority telling us to do something, we will, at least 70% of us, go along with it. And, you know, when I present this to my class, I always ask them, you know, which, how many of you think you would have stopped? And you can watch the videos, and there are great videos of people, you know, refusing to go on. Mm -hmm. You know, and these are we should look at these people and say, these are moral heroes, right? These are yeah. people who are willing to stand up to authority. Those are the people we need in public office right there. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, those are the people who are willing to stand up to authority in defense of their conscience. And that's, and it's alarming to find out that that's much less than the majority. Yeah. Um, right. And nobody likes to think of themselves that they would do this, but odds are you would. Right. And so maybe that's a, yeah, that, that's a good spot. You got any comments, Peter? I was going to say one, one thing that disturbs me in reading it is I, I agree. Those people who didn't go up to 450 are heroes to some extent. But if I remember correctly from reading, everyone went up to at least 300 volts, which yeah. isn't, I, if I, if I is remember right? correctly, it's not exactly the lethal range, but it's one still pretty high. You know, yeah. it, it's still relative to the experiment, one of the further along buttons. Yes. So that that's that was a very scary part to me is that no one stood up to it before the 300 volts. Yeah. All right. So Justin, give us a teaser going into break then here, and then we'll we'll uh, go to the second half. Um, well, maybe in the second half we should talk about what this says about how society ought to be structured. Or okay, um, sure. Yeah, that sounds like a good good place to go, and maybe we'll figure out where faith fits into this and uh, structure of religion even, because I think there's some interesting historical things with the church that would probably fall into this human condition if that's what the Milgram experiment actually uncovered for us. So we'll be back in just a bit. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate123povertysucks.org. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Uh, here at Ottawa, we've got uh, student programming due to a generous gift from the Menard family, and we're doing a Bitcoin reading club uh, to learn about Bitcoin and its impact. We have guest speaker Brian Kaplan uh, with a partnership we've got with Emporia State University and their center there. Uh, he'll be talking about open borders and issues surrounding immigration. So we have lots of interesting topics like that for people who want to learn more about economic freedom and human flourishing. If you know someone that is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Russ, or I today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. All right, we're back. Continuing on with our topic here. Nate, you had something you wanted to... Yeah, we ended the conversation talking about how 100% of the people in this experiment went all the way up to 300 volts, and that's that's pretty high. And 65, almost 70% went to the XXX, which is basically says death, and the people on the other side were <laughs> silent. But I was just... A question that came to mind, does that mean, uh, do all people have evil inside of them? And that just certain situations bring it out so if you're saying that going up to 300 is evidence that uh, all people are somewhat evil i would say no right because yeah. what it's not like these experimenters go in and uh you know when they administer the first shock it's somebody strapped to a board saying let me out of here mister right yeah. they just the subject yeah. just goes ow ow and it's really only when you get to the 300 level mm -hmm. that it's, you know, it starts to get darker and darker as you go on. But at, at the 300 levels, when people start going, let me out of here, I don't want to participate anymore. My heart hurts, right? So yeah. presumably at the beginning, you as the teacher think that the other person is a volunteer. And even though they ex they're expressing some kind of discomfort, you know, yeah. uh, nobody after the first one goes, <clears throat> you know, they oh, oh well, now I'm out yeah. right? <laughs> if, it's, if it's an electric shock. Um, so Really, it's only later on that those that it becomes something like, oh no, this person is 
definitely against their will and we are doing it seems like we're doing definite harm to them and in some cases uh, major harm right yeah. so in that sense i don't think that's evidence that everybody is evil that the mm -hmm. fact that, that they went to 300 but i mean i do think that something like this might be a good argument for this idea that look we all think that we aren't capable of evil right it's yeah. it's it's something in our well, at least big evil if we were to rank yeah. levels of evil yeah um uh, most of us you know don't think we would go to 300 but it's good to know that no actually most of us are capable of doing something really evil and so there's that you know line from the Gulag archipelago which is you know the line of evil runs down the heart of all men or something mm -hmm. right which is just that you know we are all capable yeah, right. of doing so yeah i mean that's things. what first came to mind too is from a biblical standpoint, yes, original sin, um, we are all fallen. Now, then that gets into the levels of what that evil looks like. But I think what's interesting about this, as you were saying, is people seem to be more easily nudged into evil than they otherwise would have maybe thought they could do. Yeah, also, that's a good point, too, is that if you start this experiment by saying, when they get it wrong, give them 400 volts, right? Right. I think you find a lot more people uh, saying, oh, I'm not going to do that. Right. You know, if the first button they press is, ah, yeah. you know, this, <laughs> right. this is killing me. Right. Um, the experiment probably stops. Right. But if, yeah. when you do it gradually, you know, you heat the frog, then it's, it's easier to get people to, to go along that way. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's similar with other human behaviors. Of That's why economists focus at decision-making at the margin, because it's like, oh, well, could you go, there's a big commitment of a purchase of $11,000 and you're like, okay, I'm going to do 11,000, right? Like an auction works, right? So then it's like, oh, 11, one. It's like, oh, that's only $100 more, even though you knew you didn't want to spend over $11,000 going into it, but oh, 11, one, I can go 11, one, raise your hand, right? And so we can be nudged along, even with, we have the best of intentions of not doing it. Whereas if we were presented with 11, one place, we'd say, no. One of the things that I was thinking about when I was reading this was as an economist, why is it that people do this? So usually in economics, we think of like costs and benefits. And so at the beginning of this, it seems like there's a relatively small cost. Like you push the button, they say, ouch. And so like, maybe that bothers you if you're an empathetic person. And so that's a little cost on you. But by the end, you've got this huge cost of your, you know, people are shaking. Justin was saying, you're worried that you're going to cause serious harm to a person. And so the cost rises over time yet people continue to do it. And so it makes you think there must be a benefit associated with this. Otherwise people are being irrational. They have to at least perceive there's some benefit. And the only thing that I can make sense of is this, that this idea of following authority by itself in the abstract, no matter what the situation is, must be beneficial in a lot of places in our lives. Uh, not that it's morally good to do so, but that it has a lot of benefits. And so the two examples I thought of in my life where I generally just follow authority, I don't do the research myself, is when it comes to doctors and medical procedures for my kids. That's one really great example is that I don't look at the science ahead of time. I don't make sure that I'm being told the proper thing. And these are potentially risky things that are going on. I just assume that the medical authority, the peer review system and all that is relatively good. I take my children in and to go with the procedures that are recommended for the most part blindly. And so this is an example of me following an authority to possibly detrimental effects. You would think if you're playing around with someone's body chemistry or something like that, that could be, you know, very dangerous. And then the other example I think of is in raising my kids, actually. And so when I raise my, my daughter, I teach her things like you have to wait till everyone's sitting at the table before you eat food. And so what does that, what does that teach her? Well, she doesn't really understand why, right? That norm isn't something that she can comprehend, that it's rude. Like the rudeness is way too hard for a three-year-old to understand that it's rude to eat when no one else is at the table. So in a way, I'm 
forcing her to accept or, or encouraging her to accept discomfort for herself in order to, you know, serve some end she doesn't really understand. You're so, an authoritarian. I, 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 I get, yeah, <laughs> as a dad, there's, I, there's certainly some to extent, some extent to which I am that. And so I think that's kind of the, the crux. Now that doesn't make it good. And certainly I still think it's applause worthy that some people were willing to stop, you know, when they saw very clearly the harm that was being done by their actions. But there is this margin where following authority, I think, serves as like a, a heuristic rule that a lot of people use. And it tends to work out for them, I think. I would also say that one of the things that's present in this example, and we'll get into more of this the next time, is that this idea of, you know, when we were saying the benefits versus the cost, is that the way these prompts are structured, the experiment requires that you go on. You have no choice. You must go on. Our attempts by the experimenter to tell you that you won't have to bear these costs, yeah. right? That yeah. these costs, I, you know, I am bearing your these costs. That's a really good wheel. point. You're yeah. a machine. The experiment yeah. requires you to go on rather than, you know, it's your responsibility or something like yes. that. Yes. So I would say that that's one reason. Uh, I think that's a psychological thing that's going on in people. Um, and then I would say that I think it's really rational for you to tell your daughter, you know, look, you just have to follow the rules sometimes, right? Uh, because children that young can't uh, understand things. But I would also say, absolutely do not just trust doctors. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my best friend's dad almost died in the hospital because, you know, they were just trusting the doctor and, yeah. was, and he almost died of sepsis because the doctor had put up a draining tube incorrectly in his, in his stomach. I've had you know, uh, my wife be put on medications where for a symptom and I look up the medication and the number one adverse reaction to the medication is the exact symptom that the medication was for. Uh, <laughs> and I have to call, I have to say, no, call them back up. This, this won't work for you. Yeah. And I have to do that now because I've had so many examples of right. uh, these doctors not. And sometimes know. they're rush, rush in the clinic and don't know your wife, obviously, as well as you do, right? So they might, the right questions might not have been asked about the side effects. Or I learned a little bit of this from um, my wife's dad. So my father-in-law, um, he's been in a chair and disabled since he was 20, and he's now 70. Uh, but it was funny. We'd go to the doctor. He'd have some issue doctor would say, ah, we're going to do this. And he's like, no, nope, we're not going to do that. Like he would go with his gut. Like he had been around doctors so long that he's like, nope, that ain't going to work. You know? And, and so he was willing to push back against their, uh, what they said. I used to trust, trust doctors. I don't anymore. <laughs> uh, so I, I think this segues well into though, this sort of anti-authoritarianism, maybe even on all margins. And so th this is what it gets to. So I think the average person, I would say, trusts doctors. And to an extent, I probably trust doctors more than I should. And I actually agree with you that I should probably spend more time doing my own research there. And so in society, I think most people just kind of trust doctors. But there are people in society who are sort of promoting this idea that you should be against a, just trusting authority in every case, basically, uh, even down to the level, like we were talking about earlier, of children. And so if I had to pick a segment of the population who would not push the button, maybe not even to 300, maybe not even once, but certainly not all the way to 450, if I needed to pick like a group that I name and they go in and almost none of them touch the button and my, you know, uh, my money or my life rides on picking it, I choose the people who have gone through Montessori education and unschooling. And so these are two programs where one of the central ideas is that learning has to come from you 
and you have to learn personally by induction and by deduction and all these sorts Before of things. Before you get into that detail, let me just tell a story about this conference sure. I went to. So this guy, I never heard of it before. He was actually one of the founders of the Montessori uh, education system. It was up in New Jersey or somewhere in the Northeast. And uh, his wife and him were kind of disgruntled with the education system and their kid was getting ready for daycare. And long story short, they, and they were very libertarian thinkers. And um, they said, well, well, let's start our own school. And the school ultimately, as he goes on to say, has no rules. The kids at age five participate not only in what they want to do, but the administration of the school. They have a vote on whether there's going to be a new playground. A five-year-old gets to vote as part of the board. Now there's adults and parents and teachers and other things too, but they are actually an active voice even at five years old in their system. And so he tells a few little side stories like, well, this little girl, you know, we were a little bit worried about her with their system as they were learning, you know, when they started to garner a few students for their school. And this little girl or somebody in the audience said, well, how do they learn to read? And he said, I don't know. That's what he, that's what his answer was. I don't know. They just do. And so the kids will say, oh, I want to read. And they're eight years old or something. They'll hand them a book and they'll start reading. They don't get taught how to read. They just slowly over time, if they want to learn it, they, they learn it. And then another example he gave was this kid had never done any math. He comes up at 12 years old and he says, I want to learn math. And so they have kind of facilitators. The teachers are really just there to facilitate them. They do have to choose to do something. They can't, they have to be constructive, but they could be doing play guitar for a year. They could do art. They can, they can do, they choose what their activity is for the day when they come to school and so the 12-year-old comes and says, I want to learn math. And he's like, okay. And he handed him a, a math textbook. And then he went away for two weeks. And he said, yeah, I figured he must have got disenchanted with it. And then he comes up to me two weeks later. And he says, I have a question. He said, I was wondering if you were still at looking at that. And he opens up the book. Yeah, I'm on page 182 of a math book in two weeks. He, went, he worked through the whole book because he was so intense about wanting to learn math that he caught up really fast. And so that was just a couple of the stories. Ultimately, some of their kids do, uh, do go on to college, but he said they really come out of our school self-actualized. They know who they are. And I think I agree with Peter that people from that type of schooling would be pretty comfortable without authority because they've really never had authority. Yeah. And just a note on like teach, learning how to read and stuff in those schools a lot of it is your peers will teach you too so okay even sure. though you don't know how they're learning to read it's that you know somebody <laughs> right. who knows how to read is teaching them how yeah. to read it's not like they're all just doing it on yes. their own by themselves yes yeah. good point so, and i'm sure i'm skewing it a little bit but the the whole all of these stories kind of add up to this idea that in the, the classroom you know that a, a really good teacher will act as a facilitator of learning but never as an authority of knowledge you know you're not there to teach the knowledge that you have as a teacher mm -hmm. you're there to enable learning and so you know, in economics, again, I, I might butcher this a little bit, the way that I would think of this is, you know, if I were being a Montessori teacher, we would start by talking about, okay, do we want a textbook? Here's some things, here's some textbooks that I have liked in the past. You know, what do you all think? And, you know, maybe they select a textbook. Mm -hmm. And then the first day of class comes, what chapter should we talk about today? And, you know, people will say, maybe they'll come together with a consensus and say, oh, I thought demand was cool. Let's talk about demand. And so you say, oh, okay, um, could someone, you know, you know, give me like a, a schedule of demand or something like that. 
And then the students start giving you, let, let's, let's imagine the students start giving you like an upward sloping demand curve. And so the first law of demand in economics is that, you know, when the price of something goes up, the quantity of that thing that you demand go down. It makes a lot of intuitive sense. Mm -hmm. But let's say that they start saying that, oh, you know, as the price goes up, people want to buy more and more of the good. You know, the price is a million dollars. Now they want to buy a million. Uh, the economist in, in the room and the teacher in the room would not correct these students. He would let them continue on making that mistake and, you know, continue developing this mistaken model. Mm. And the goal is to like sort of confront them with contradictions. Mm. And by confronting them with contradictions, you force them to realize that they're starting to make their own mistake. And so, so it's the, the point of this being that I think this is a really good method for teaching people to not just blindly accept the authority, but obviously has a, a trade-off, which is that, you know, you, you might make it through 12 chapters if you're doing a, a normal te teaching method. And maybe if you're doing a Montessori teaching method, you make it through one chapter or some people make it through 30 chapters and one person doesn't make it through any at all. So there's sort of a trade-off. I there. mean, arguably the, the, the current school system is the first place where we learn this authoritarian stuff uh, of, of following authority, right? With you're in fifth grade and you're, or not fifth grade, you're in kindergarten, first grade, follow the teacher, what the teacher says, just like Peter in his, in his dining room. And so, but that wasn't the case historically. We all, we've all seen movies and other things about the school, the little schoolhouse and the little town and people come to school and there's one teacher that's teaching basically K through 12. And so there's a lot of self-study that way. And it wasn't until the 1940s or something, I think it was post-World post War II, where the whole conception of the government taking over the school system, the K through 12, and it's, a, it's like Henry Ford on the factory line we're going to pump out little educated units and it starts in first grade and this is the curriculum and everything's really driven by thinking of a, a human being being a hom homogenous good that we just have to mold them and everybody's the same, right? And so you go through this factory process of K through 12 and out at the end pops a, a well-adjusted, educated kid, which we know doesn't happen all the time. And I, I love this alternative schooling stuff. It's really Do you know where this model of education that you're talking about came from? No. Is this Dewey? What, which one are you talking about? Montessori? The, no, the one that you don't like. The one that I don't like, no. Well, do you know where the word kindergarten came from? No. <laughs> Kinder. Child. Mm. German. This is the Prussian model of education. Ah, it was okay. started by Frederick the Great. Um, and its model... What year, roughly? Uh, late 1700s. Okay. Um, it was imported to the U.S., you're right, after World War II. It was after World War II. Yeah. Like reading about it or something. I mean, something. a little bit, it was, you know, it was in the U.S. since the beginning of the 19th century, but was, I'm mean, sorry, since the beginning of the 20th century, but was really federalized after right. World War II. Okay, yeah. Um, and you are 100% right that the, the goal of this kind of education is to turn out children who are, you know, these identical units and who will be good factory workers, who will be good at sitting in one place and following directions mm -hmm. and completing a task. Yeah. And I just feel like we're ready to bust out of that. Like we're right on the edge. And I think yeah. this COVID thing and the, the growth of homeschoolers right. and some other movements, I mean, let's get rid of that. I, I just don't think it's the right thing. I, I know there'd be, most people don't, wouldn't say that, but I just think it's been it's 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 so manipulated now we we started off maybe with a a baseline level like i i could hear the argument being well we all have to have at least a base level of understanding and and maybe i'm being insensitive to low income populations or something and and i think there would have to be uh, service done to help support people without means potentially for their kids but i know some other people would argue no just let them go let them be free 
you can make an argument that we all need a base level, but once you make that argument and you see that, okay, we'll let you teach them the base level, <laughs> then you'd be surprised what they think the base level yeah, is. The and this, and, yeah, this yeah. idea that what we need is some kind of weird. Yeah. Well, the base level is what we're at now. Well, some kind is, of ethical teachings that you might not agree with. Sure. Um, is the base level talking about, uh, you know, sexual education in, in third grade mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, or is the base level that you need to understand advanced chemistry? Right. I've never used that. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Should you need to know how to argue? I think you should. You don't learn <laughs> that anywhere in, right. in uh, <laughs> primary school, right? So we mentioned earlier, too, our, our Gorton Institute event with Brian Kaplan doing open border stuff. But one of the interesting uh, questions Brian Kaplan asked earlier in his career was, why is it that if you take every course in college, except for one three-credit-hour liberal arts course on, like, the history of, you know, America from 1700 to 1800, and you apply for an engineering job, you won't get it. Like, why could it be that you could take all your calculus courses, all your engineering courses, but if you don't finish your degree because you missed out on one course that's required by the university, but has nothing to do with your engineering degree. Oh, sheepskin effect. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Why, you know, why don't you get, why can't you get the, the job? Yeah, and what Brian argues, I think successfully, spoke the case against education, fantastic title for a book, <laughs> is that what education actually signals is exactly what Justin was talking about and exactly what Russ was talking about. Conformity. It signals that you can be a good little student and follow all the rules presented before you and jump through the hoops and that makes you a really good factory worker. Mm -hmm. If you're a student who says, no, I don't want to take this ridiculous class. I don't want this like recreation 478 class that has nothing to do with my life. I just want to take like engineering. I would rather take calculus four than recreation 478. And the university says no. Well, that they're, they're signaling they're very smart and that they want to learn more. But th what they're not signaling is that they can follow rules very well. Yeah. And so I, I think this is absolutely and it's, right. it's really the entrepreneurs that say, I'm not buying that conformity. And they yeah. start the business out of their garage. And so there's countless number of entrepreneurs that basically block that. And they never get their college degree. And yeah. they're wildly yeah. successful at whatever. Also, the most uh, dynamic areas of an economy usually don't require the sheepskin effect. You know, mm -hmm. and if you, you know, right. if if you can prove like that you can, code, if, if right you, can prove you can code code really that's well, right. nobody gives you know nobody yeah. cares which community college you might take. That's, that's right. right. That's why Peter Thiel actually. That's why he says that he has a little fellowship for people who drop out of high school or drop out of college. So don't go to college or they leave after high school or maybe drop out during high school as well and start their own business. He offers a fellowship because he believes that those people who have like a good idea and pursue it are going to have the best opportunity to create a lot of value as opposed to someone who goes to college. And, you know, still create some value, but, you know, Teal thinks the better investment is the, the person who is smart enough to drop out and create their own business. <laughs> yeah. So bringing this all back, yeah, that's what right. we are talking about here are people who are being told by society, hey, you need to do this thing. And yeah. this isn't even something that is going to harm anybody else, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're being told to go to college, you're not being told, hey, kick this guy on the way to college, right? Yeah. You're just yeah. being told, hey, society expects this of you. Yeah. And if you go, no, you know what? I'm going to follow my own conscience. Okay. Um, yeah, so that mindset might come from the institutions that we have, starting with the school system, as we've been expounding on, that teaches you to be that rule follower. And now that can lead to this uh, results that we see in the Milgram experiment. That it's not necessarily, point being, it, it's not necessarily the human, as we've talked about, a human who went through the Montessori system might not do it, but a person who's generally 70% of people who mostly go through the standard K through 12 system are those people who are hitting the triple X button all the way through. I would think it's both. I would sure. Think oh, that, yeah. for sure. A combination. Yeah. 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 I'm not trying to 
totally either or of that. But yeah. um, I think we can all agree certainly that the the experiment shows that not not that everyone commits evil, but it seems like everyone has the potential to. And that, to me, that's really strong takeaways that everyone has the potential to be deferent to authority and more people than we would expect at least. That's, yeah, that's a, thing. a lot yeah, more people, a lot than, more we people than we'd expect. Because um, when they did the pre-experiment survey, um, Milgram and his colleagues predicted that only 3% of the people would ever get to the final button. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh. Wow. Um, and so, so that's one of the reasons it was such a sh pretty shocking. <laughs> yep. You said no pun intended. Yeah. Shocking result. Well, that looks like a good place to end this one, unless anybody's got any final <laughs> comments. <laughs> This has been a production of the Gorty Institute here at Ottawa University. We appreciate you all listening and making it uh, maybe all the way to the end of this one. So with a little laugh at the at the end. If you feel so inclined, we have a little donate button on the GortonInstitute.org website, and that's a great place to go. Otherwise, your support with a five-star rating helps us rise to the ranks and help people find our show. Also, the podcast requires that you press the button. <laughs> there we go. You must press the button. There we go. All right. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.